This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is very good to be with you again, Chris. Welcome to another episode of Insecurities. I'm just glad we work together with those, you know, pesky vacation schedules that come up at this time of year. So always good to get together. This, Kurt, is, drumroll please, episode Mm -hmm. 99. 99. Um, Who knew, right? I think episode nine, we thought we'd we'd outkick that one. But here we are (laughs) many, many episodes later. Great to great to share this one with you. Yeah, pretty incredible. I can't believe we're getting ready to hit a century here in just a couple of weeks. I think Mm -hmm. we're going to have a special guest on that one, but more to come. So please stay tuned. And I think we mentioned maybe last episode, the episode before, that we are planning some kind of gathering in the fall to commemorate uh, reaching 100 episodes, which is an important milestone. So stay tuned for more details on that as well. But back to the present business Chris, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. It's something that we've talked about from time to time on the podcast, and that is, you almost have to whisper it, regulation by enforcement. Ooh, God, I was getting nervous it was going to be Reg BI, Kurt, so I'm glad we're on, <laughs> no, on no, a different no. topic. We've, we've moved on. We've moved on. <laughs> you know, it's funny because for a long time, I think just even uttering regulation by enforcement was, was a little bit taboo. It was maybe mm-hmm. edgy. But I think in the last couple of years, particularly since Chair Gensler has been in the big chair, uh, we're hearing more and more about regulation and for regulation by enforcement. Uh, it's something we've talked about a bunch on the show, including a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, believe it or not, uh, we had Commissioner Crenshaw on the show That's right. uh, on an episode called Enforcing the Regulations, where as commissioners tend to do, she said, we are about enforcing the regulations, not regulation by enforcement. Obviously, others may have a different view, including (laughs) our friend Nick Morgan, who's joining us today. He is a recognized thought leader on all things SEC regulation and enforcement. And of course, many of our listeners will know Nick. He is going to talk to us about regulation by enforcement through the lens of ICANN, the Investor Choice Advocates Network, which is a nonprofit he founded to pushback on SEC overreach. So before we get to Nick, Chris, how about a little bit more background? For those of you who don't know, uh, Nick Morgan is a partner in the investigations and white collar defense practice at Paul Hastings, where his practice focuses on complex securities litigation, government investigations, and white collar criminal matters. Nick also counsels public companies, funds, and broker-dealers on securities compliance and corporate governance. In representing those clients, Nick draws on his years of experience at the SEC, where he previously served as Senior Trial Counsel in the SEC's Enforcement Division. Nick also served as a Special Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. In addition to his role at Paul Hastings, as you mentioned, Kurt, Nick is the founder and president of the Investor Choice Advocates Network, or ICANN, a nonprofit public interest litigation organization dedicated to breaking down barriers to entry to capital markets and pushing back against the overreach of the SEC. 
Nick is also called upon frequently to provide public commentary on SEC enforcement actions and rulemaking initiatives, uh, which is why he joins us here today. Nick, welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to fanboy out for a minute because I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. We appreciate really it. Really happy to be number 99. I think that can come back and be 100 also. But no, it's really, thank you for having me on. This is a great, a great right. pleasure. Glad to have you. And, and obviously, like we said, many listeners out there, I'm sure, have read and, and seen your yeah. commentary over the years, uh, both through social Absolutely. media and a lot of the, the public outlets out there. So we're, we're glad to have you. Yeah, well, let's get started. I'd love to hear more about ICANN. You know, we mentioned that the organization is, quote, pushing back against the overreach of the SEC, end quote. That's that's your language, uh, ICANN uh, founder, Nick. Uh, And we see on the website that ICANN's value statement (laughs) includes legally challenging the decision making of the commission. Let's let's get into ICANN. Let's get a little bit more on the background. When was this organization founded? For whom do you advocate and on, on which issues? So it really obviously fits right in with our, I was, as you mentioned, I was at the SEC. My practice is 100% SEC defense work. A partner of mine, former partner Paul Hastings, but longtime friend and colleague Tom Zaccaro, and I met at the SEC and have practiced sometimes at the same firm, sometimes at different firms. Anyway, over the course of many years, he and I saw this pattern, which I'm sure you and your listeners will be familiar with. Most people settle with the SEC. And the reason is it's very expensive to litigate. Again. Well, I guess that's one reason. Other people settle with the SEC because they're going to lose. But, but, but for a, a lot of uh, people and smaller companies, they settle because of the cost of litigation. And so we, we saw that pattern. We had multiple people come to us at our firms and ask if we could represent them. And, you know, big firm rates being what they are, a lot of times we have to politely decline. And so a lot of people go pro se. And that's, you know, yet another incentive for them to settle if they don't know how to defend themselves. So that's sort of the genesis of where ICANN came about, not only because people were having to settle for a lack of resources, but also because what happens, or at least the way we perceive it, over time, you get a series of settlements that are, by definition, pro-SEC, and then you get the as though they are precedential, which, you know, they're not, but uh, you get that, that perspective. And so what we saw accumulating over time was a body of, quote-unquote, law that's pro-SEC. And at least in our view, we think that most impacts the smaller players, the, the small investors, the small companies seeking to raise funds, the big companies, they can roll with the punches. They've got the resources to to fight or adjust or hire compliance people or whatever. So we thought there was an unmet need to provide representation where possible, or at least provide a voice where we thought the law was going in the wrong direction as a result of just settlement after settlement after settlement. So that's so we started it in early 2022 and have you know steadily increased our our activities. So far, you know, our, our objective is to be able to directly represent people in SEC litigation. We have not yet achieved that objective. So we have been, it's an all, at this point, it's an all volunteer crew. You know, we've got our board of directors and Tom and I are sort of heading up the legal work. So we've so far to date limited our activities to rule comment letters, amicus briefs. Popular topic of debate in in all uh, circles, right? Not just in the commission's uh, view. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. And not just the Latin scholars. It's, you know. So anyway, it's been uh, a steadily increasing amount of activity. We hope to get to the point where we have the resources to directly represent people in precedent setting cases where they can't afford counsel. 
Excellent. And getting into those amicus briefs, you know, ICANN has filed more than a dozen amicus briefs in a number of cases in the last few years. Some of these cases, Kurt, have been topics here we've discussed on the Insecurities Podcast, such as Ripple, Grayscale, and Wahi. Tell us about that process, Nick. How do you, you and ICANN decide which cases with for which to write these briefs and, and who mm-hmm. who takes the pen? Who's actually writing those briefs and, and how are they developed? So first on the on the choice of which cases, we try to look for cases where we think the investor choice angle is not being covered necessarily by the parties and where there's a potential precedent setting issue. So that tends to be, I mean, if you think about the federal securities laws and and where the SEC's jurisdiction expands or contracts, it's around fundamental issues like what is a security? What is a broker? What is a dealer? What is an investment advisor? Those kind of gatekeeping legal issues can really expand or contract the SEC's jurisdiction. So we look for cases where something jurisdictional is at issue. It may impact the choices available to investors if the SEC were to prevail. And and so that's kind of how we pick the cases. And so you mentioned a couple of the crypto cases. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot of these foundational jurisdictional battles happening in the crypto space. So that just happens to be where a number of our our amicus briefs, or we filed them, but we've also filed them in a number of non-crypto cases. Um, So, and then who takes the pen? We've been fortunate enough to rely on volunteers, not just from Paul Hastings, but from other firms as well. So, you know, we've relied on other law firms. In the Wahi case, Oric helped us with that brief. In the Grayscale case, mm-hmm. we had a lot of help from a lot of academics who also joined our brief. We have some patron supporters who like to weigh in from time to time on the briefs yeah. and, uh, and join ICANN on the briefs. So there's a, a gentleman named Phil Goldstein who has been on some, some of the briefs, and he likes to comment as a knowledgeable, you know, participant in the markets. So it's been a, it's all volunteer, but it's been a sort of broad-based writing effort and, Is and it, thought it, effort. Just to kind of ask a follow-up on that, it, do you find that it's easy to identify the resources who are passionate and, and able to comment on these? Or, or does ICANN often have to, you know, look for a little bit more support than maybe is being offered at a given time? Two two sources are, are seem like very willing participants. One is mm-hmm. sort of the SEC defense bar. I think many of us, and that would you know include Kurt, obviously, in the SEC defense bar, have seen that even a well-intentioned agency can sometimes go beyond mm-hmm. where it, it should go. So so we've had thankfully a lot of support yeah. from former SEC people who on particular cases, particular issues line up with ICANN and, and agree to, to help us out. The other source is people who've been put through the ringer by the SEC uh, and don't want that to happen to other people. So I mentioned Phil Goldstein. We've been lucky enough to have Mark Cuban join us on a few briefs and, and will be joining us on an upcoming brief in the Jarkissi case. And so I think if you've had an encounter with the SEC, and again, this is not, I, I worked there and I thought I was always doing my job and I had good intentions, but sometimes just sort of the machinery of the institution, it's impersonal, it's bureaucratic. So if you sometimes come face to face with that as a defendant or someone in an investigation, you come out of the process thinking, you know, this could be better. We could improve this. And so those people tend to be enthusiastic supporters as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it is an impressive cast of characters you've assembled to help you write these briefs. So, you <laughs> the know, Avengers, well, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well done on that. But of course, you know, ICANN yes. does more than than write or pull together the folks to help write the amicus. I'm an amicus guy, so I'll you know default drawing to amicus, the battle but, lines, right? <laughs> to help uh, to help write these amicus briefs. But in addition, ICANN prepares and submits what it calls action letters, and these include comment letters on rulemaking proposals that the SEC puts forth, FOIA requests, things like that. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about that part of ICANN's work. How do they use these so-called action letters to advocate for small investors and entrepreneurs? So a couple of ways. One, you, we obviously everyone has the opportunity to comment on proposed rules during the public comment period. And, and we're, we're going to be talking about regulation by enforcement. So if we're going to complain on the one hand about the inability to participate when the SEC is litigating and argue that the SEC should, when it's making a fundamental change, proceed by way of rulemaking, then we feel like we ought to at least participate in that process when we see an issue that's important. So we have, and there has been no shortage of rule <laughs> proposals coming out of the SEC in the last year, year and a half. So we look for, and we get feedback from people in the industry on proposed rules that may impact investors. And one of the things we look for, we don't we don't submit comment letters on every proposed rule. We look for rules that are going to have an impact on investors and possibly restrict the choices available to investors. So, so we do that, and then we keep an eye on the rules. And if they get finalized, then occasionally we're able to participate in any litigation when the rules get challenged. The other way we do it, so that's public comment on, on proposed rules. And we, this other example we've only done once, but we hope to do more of it in the future is, and I didn't know this, but and not a lot of people do, I think, you can petition the SEC for rulemaking. So again, you know, if we're going to complain about the way things are proceeding in the litigation sphere, we feel like we ought to be vocal when we see something that should be reformed. So we submitted a petition for rulemaking to reform the so-called accredited investor definition. And we gathered up a number of people who uh, would like to participate in the private securities offerings. For, for those who don't know, this you know the accredited investor definition comes into play when some when an issuer issues securities in a private offering that is exempt from registration, and some of those exemptions limit the issuer to taking money from accredited investors. Accredited investors have a certain net worth and a certain income level. So we encountered a number of people who thought that they were sophisticated enough, even though they didn't meet the net income and asset thresholds, they thought they were sophisticated enough to make their own decisions about whether to participate in these private securities. And so we, after speaking to a bunch of them, put together a petition to reform that definition. So, so that's another way in which we seek to sort of change the direction of the SEC is by petitioning for rules. On a lighter note, Nick, are you approached by a lot of very wealthy individuals who would like to not be classified as accredited investors because they feel they are not sophisticated enough? Or, <laughs> you know, are we not proving that negative? Chris, I, that hasn't yeah. been yeah. I'm sure. That's, that's, strange. that's strange. Yeah, yeah. No, maybe they should. You know, there are some people I'm, who I'm, might want to be classified I, as unaccredited. I can imagine. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. Well, we've been sort of dancing around this concept of regulation by enforcement. Let's go ahead and get into it. And again, we're going to sort of look at this through the lens of ICANN or, you know, the uh, entities or individuals that ICANN helps out. 
Most of our listeners are fairly familiar, I would imagine, with the SEC rulemaking process, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. We get the odd student listening in. So I'm going to give a, I'm going to call it quick. We'll see a quick primer oh, no. on SEC. I know, I know. On, uh, Take it away, on, Kurt. <laughs> on SEC rulemaking. And to be fair to the SEC, I'm going to pull and quote extensively from a short article called Rulemaking, How It Works, which you can find on the SEC website, investor.gov. Now, as that article explains, rulemaking is the process that federal agencies, including the SEC, use to make rules. Some rulemaking implements laws passed by Congress. Other rulemaking updates rules under existing laws or creates new rules within an agency's existing authority that the agency believes are needed. The process is designed to give members of the public an opportunity to provide their opinions and typically involves two phases. First, the rulemaking process usually begins with a proposing release or rule proposal, which is published for public notice and comment. Just a side note, sometimes the SEC seeks public input with what's called a concept release before issuing a proposed rule, but we're usually going to start with a rulemaking proposal. A proposing release typically contains the text of the proposed new or amended rule, along with a discussion of the issue or problem the proposal is designed to address. The SEC will then consider the its next steps. All right, that's all phase one. Phase two is what is the adopting release and rule adoption portion of the process. The adopting release and final rule reflect the SEC's consideration of the public comments, or at least this is me, this is not on investor.gov, the SEC explaining in footnotes why the comments are wrong. The new rule or rule amendment will then become part of the SEC's official rules if it gets you know past a commission vote. Okay, so that's the end of the portion pulling on uh, investor.gov. I mean, that's the traditional process. Uh, so-called regulation by enforcement is effectively creating rules for regulated persons or entities or market participants without going through that process. Through SEC enforcement actions, the commission may interpret, construe, or implement the federal securities laws and rules in new or more expansive ways, leading some to argue that the SEC is sort of creating new rules through enforcement. And the SEC will sometimes roll out several enforcement actions all at once, all positing the same new theory of liability, creating a body of precedent, or as Nick said earlier, not really precedent, <laughs> on which the <laughs> right. staff and the commission will rely in future actions. So, for example, the Financial Services Institute, which is a D.C.-based advocacy group representing independent financial advisors and independent financial services firms, has argued that the SEC's wave of share class selection disclosure cases constituted regulation by enforcement. SCSD initiative, quote, has taken over $125 million from investment advisors. However, the enforcement staff could not cite a clear rule or regulation that had been violated. Instead, the SEC relied on previous settlements and past published guidance, which are statements of the staff's view on a topic at a given time, to squeeze settlements from businesses today. This drive-by regulating without rules harms independent financial services firms and American investors. Independent financial firms and advisors have a reasonable expectation that the SEC will establish clear rules of the road before engaging in enforcement. 
end quote. And just to be clear, the drive-by, I know it sort of got a laugh out of other <laughs> wow. folks here. Not my, not my words, not my yeah. words. But so look, this hints at sort of the big knocks against regulation by enforcement. It creates uncertainty. It creates expenses. It creates the opportunity for inconsistent interpretations or enforcement outcomes. And of course, all of that can cause harm to investors. The big topic we talk about regulation by enforcement today, Nick, you hit on it earlier, crypto. We hear about it all the time in the crypto space. And you know we'll have to see if any actual regulations come out of that, if we're going to continue down this path. But anyway, that was my quick. Chris, quick? Do I get a quick stamp on that? You do get an acknowledgement, yeah. a very complex idea distilled down, Kurt. It's almost like it takes us 99 episodes to, to finally get here, you and I. Right, exactly. But I think, too, a, a great summary of, of everything you just talked about really came from uh, former SEC Chair Jay Clayton when he made an appearance recently on CNBC Squawk Box, uh, talking about a shift uh, in today's SEC. He said, quote, what you're hearing from the leaders of the regulatory organizations is if we're not losing cases, if we're not being pushed back on by the courts, we're not doing enough. That is a fundamental shift in how we, as Americans, view the role of the government. I don't want to be in a place where I know the government is going to bring cases they think they are going to lose. Imagine you are the person who is subject to that case, end quote. So, Nick, we've laid out kind of the, the landscape of regulation by enforcement, some criticisms, some ideas behind how it developed. What's your take? And especially in relation to, to former Chair Clayton's comments, is, is he right? And, and is that now different with today's commission? I actually wouldn't peg it to a particular commission. I think it's an institutional problem uh, and not limited to the SEC. I think that if you're an administrative agency, you see your mission as all gas pedal and no brake pedal. And, and I think the best evidence of that is the record the SEC has had recently at the Supreme Court, where we've had a number of unanimous decisions, unanimous decisions about fundamental practices by the SEC. Like the SEC, when I was there, the SEC thought we had no statute of limitations when we sought disgorgement. That's just not, I mean, of course you have a statute of limitations, but the, and, and no one person sat down and said, we're going to litigate cases with no, you know, and, and act like we have no statute of limitations. Takes a Supreme Court decision to say, well, yeah, actually you do. And then the SEC went and got statutory relief. I mean, that's what they should have done in the first place. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to peg it to one commission or another. I think it's an institutional issue and it's inertia. There's no one within the agency who is going to say, wait a minute, that's a step too far. We should, you know, we shouldn't pursue this theory in litigation. One of the great things about litigating the cases for the SEC is you've got a lot of autonomy in how you litigate it. So it's an accumulation. It's an aggregation of decisions over time that sort of become institutionalized. But I, I think Commissioner Clayton, former Commissioner Clayton, is former Chair Clayton, uh, is correct that if your attitude is we should be losing in court, otherwise we're not trying hard enough, I think that is not the right attitude for a regulatory body. You should be looking at a case and saying, we should have a very good chance of winning this case. Otherwise, the law is unclear and you should go get the law clarified statutorily or by rulemaking. It's really interesting because I, you know, I would juxtapose that with, and we've talked about this story before 
on the show, Chris, you know, in uh, Jesse Eisinger's book, The Chicken Shit Club, right? It sort of yeah. opens with this story about Jim Comey and he's in with the U.S. attorneys in the Southern uh, District of New York, not to be confused with the Southern District of California, Nick, but Much you know, he goes in there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he says, the, as the story goes, he says something like, you know, raise your hand if you've never lost a case. And like all but one person in the room raises their hands. And he says, you're all part of the chicken shit club, right? If you're not out there trying cases that you lose, you're not trying hard enough. So I guess, Nick, you sort of see a fundamental yeah, issue with that. I do. Well, and and so I think there's a difference between being aggressive in what you think, how witnesses will be perceived, how evidence will be taken in by the judge or the jury. That's, I think, a place where an SEC trial counsel can be aggressive. I think this witness is believable and credible. I think this document should carry a lot of weight versus legal issues is does this conduct that we're alleging and going to try to prove a trial, does it mean this person was a broker? Does it mean this transaction involved a securities offering? I think those are two different things. And I think you can honor the mission of the SEC without being part of the chicken shit club. I think you can be aggressive on the factual how is this going to be taken in by the trier of fact and not be pushing the envelope uh, on fundamental jurisdictional legal questions? I think there's room for both. All right. Well, let's take a look at a couple of exa examples of how regulation by enforcement is playing out you know, in the real world. Again, through ICANN's eyes. In, in one recent example, ICANN filed an amicus brief arguing essentially that the SEC is seeking to improperly stretch its jurisdictional reach through enforcement. In another example, ICANN filed a brief arguing to set aside a final SEC rule. Different postures, of course, but both speak to the SEC's efforts to expand the rule book. So let's start with a case that is Murphy yep. versus SEC. It's currently in the Supreme Court. According to the SEC's complaint, which was filed way back in August 2018, the defendants purchased new issue municipal bonds on behalf of their asset management firm so that they could quickly resell or flip the bonds to broker-dealers at a prearranged markup. The complaint further alleged that the defendant, Jocelyn Murphy, fraudulently obtained new issue muni bonds by posing as a retail investor residing in the issuer's jurisdiction so that her orders would receive the highest priority. The SEC initially won at the district court level, where the court found that the defendants operated as unregistered brokers by regularly engaging in securities transactions on behalf of their firm in exchange for transaction-based compensation. And for those that don't practice in that space, that has become the hallmark, the question, was there transaction-based compensation? If you're wondering if you might have to register as a broker. Not advice, but call me if you have questions. <laughs> the court also found <laughs> that Jocelyn Murphy committed fraud by submitting false zip codes with her orders to secure her priority in, in the list of investors who could purchase the muni bonds. The matter has been working its way through the court system since then. As I said, it's currently pending before the Supreme Court, where the, case, the issue is really whether the SEC's civil penalties are unconstitutionally excessive. But sort of putting that to, to one side, perhaps, ICANN filed an amicus brief in the case, and it, it seems like maybe they're looking at a more fundamental question, which is about the, quote, ambiguity regarding who must register 
quote, as a broker. So Nick, why don't you explain to us ICANN's position in Murphy and how this is representative of our theme of regulation by enforcement? Yeah, thanks. Great, great summary of the case. And I, I will say one of the reasons we felt the need to create ICANN was a case just like this, where we aren't going to be in a position and don't want to represent the defendant. The defendant has been accused of fraud. And I think particularly in a case where fraud is alleged, the judge is more right. likely to be focused on the fraud and less likely to be focused on the expansion of the SEC's jurisdiction. In this case, by way of the term broker, um, so that so so there needs to be, in our view, an independent voice, a voice not associated with the defendants, come in and point out, hey, by the way, judge, if you you know we see the fraud, that if that's true, if that's proven, that's a problem. But there's this other non-fraud issue that will have wide-ranging effects, and so we thought this case, because it involves, in our view, the expansion of the the term broker to potentially sweep in people who are not currently brokers, uh, the transaction-based compensation claim issue, which as you say, Kurt, is a hallmark of determining whether someone someone's acting as a broker or not, um, sort of gets cast aside in the, in the Ninth Circuit decision that's on review to the Supreme Court. Um, Murphy's counsel did raise the broker issue but again, we thought uh, ICANN needed to present it sort of independently. So, so here you've got a situation where we think there is a fundamental shift on a jurisdictional term, broker. It's going to get decided in a case where there are a lot of other ancillary issues. And we wanted to draw the Supreme Court's attention to this issue. And, and we think it's regulation by enforcement because it is a fundamental shift in a jurisdictional uh, topic. So in that, within that context, I mean, how should we distinguish this kind of regulation, right, if we're going to call it that, here essentially through enforcement trying to expand or alter the, the definition or the concept of broker? You know, how, how should we distinguish that from traditional notice and comment? Well, in litigation, the SEC goes to great lengths to exclude third parties from participating other than in an amicus or amicus capacity. So in other words, if you try to intervene, if you're an investor, let's say you were one of these defendants investors and you want to intervene, the SEC will oppose that. The SEC will cite statutory and regulatory provisions saying you can't intervene. So the, the ability to participate for the public to participate is limited. The amount of public notice, like most people haven't heard of this case. So the amount of public awareness of the issue is limited. Juxtapose that or contrast that with rulemaking. Very public. Everyone has the opportunity to comment on it. So, and once the rule is passed, people are aware of it and people can challenge it in court. So we thought, particularly in this case, in the issue that's at stake, the SEC hasn't done a lot of rulemaking around the definition of broker. In fact, I don't know if they've done any. And and uh, there's been discussion over the years that like should finders be uh, you know considered brokers. And so this seems like an area that's ripe for rulemaking, not ripe for advancing the SEC's ball by way of a single case. Yeah, I, I will say I, I completely agree with that. I think basically we have in this space in particular the Paul Anka letter, which is like. 30 years old uh, and a bunch of other no action letters and then a vigorous dissent by Commissioner Peirce a couple of years ago in uh, in a broker case. So uh, you're, you're right. This is absolutely, absolutely ripe for some, some rulemaking, some clarity, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Anka may well, agree. And, 
<laughs> Paul Anker probably does. But if you contrast it with the other case where we submitted an amicus brief, that's the Chamber of Commerce's challenge to the share buyback disclosure rule. There, like we don't agree with the outcome. We, we think the rule will harm, will reduce choices available to investors. But we think the SEC took the right path. It was a very public process. They put out a proposed rule. Lots of people opposed it. And so, yeah, we're back in court, but we're not back in court about the process. We're back in court about the, the end result. So I think you know that's a better path for the SEC to go because it, it just allows the public to participate in a much greater way. And, and frankly, it, it'll make the SEC's decision-making better because it'll have the benefit of input from lots of different parties. Well, let's come down from the clouds on that one, Nick. You talked a little bit about the process and and, and where your your umbrance may lie. Let's get into that umbrance. The the buyback rule, as it's colloquially known, has, has been a, a hot button issue this spring and summer. Uh, to summarize, as a non-attorney, I'll expect Nick and Kurt for you to uh, correct me as we go here. The share repurchase activity log is going to be a requirement in each of the 10K reports and 10Q reports, thereby listing a daily activity uh, of when a business repurchases its own shares on the market, as well as including a description of the rationale behind each buyback, the goals of that buyback, and the criteria with which the business utilized to evaluate the need to repurchase those shares. They will also need to disclose whether specific directors or officers or insiders participated in any buybacks personally within a few days range of the company's own buyback of those shares, as well as a, a better discussion than what we've seen to date regarding the 10B51 plans. Kurt, you and I have, have probably beat that horse uh, a lot <laughs> in the past two years with some of our friends on the podcast, those being some of the main stipulations of that buyback rule. So Nick, to get into those details, where do you see that limited investor choice? Where do you see that uh, you know harm, if you will, to the market in some of the things that you wrote from ICANN's perspective? Yeah. So first, just stock buybacks in general, they uh, give investors the option, but not the obligation to take money from the company and use it on whatever they want, buy a, you know, buy a jet ski or, you know, put their kids in college, whatever. It's an opportunity to take money from a company but you don't have to do it and use it for your own purposes. So you think the company's not using it, its money uh, effectively, you can go use it for something else. So we see that as generally stock repurchase, the option to participate in a stock uh, repurchase is a good thing for investors insofar as it increases the choices available to them. So what does this rule, how does this impact that? Very rarely will the SEC outright prohibit something. So they would never have passed a rule prohibiting stock buybacks. That's just and, and you can look at any topic that is disfavored by a majority of the commissioners, they're not going to be able to outlaw it, prohibit it. So as a second best option to discourage something that is disfavored, the commission will pass rules that increase the regulatory obligations on those who want to participate in that activity. So on, in this case, you just gave a great description, Chris, of what the companies are going to have to do. Yeah. Perfect. Nailed it. But so, so that, of course, some companies, and this will tend to be bigger companies that have the resources, will comply with that regulatory obligation. But we think at the margin, the additional cost, the additional burden will dissuade some companies who might have been inclined to do a share buyback uh, from doing it. Oh, the cost is too high. This, the, the information we're going to have to put together is too great. And a couple of the comment letters when this rule was proposed pointed out that the information is unlikely to benefit investors. In other words, it's, it's, it's more likely to benefit institutional investors who can digest the information and act on it quickly, as opposed to retail investors who are not going to be able to make heads or tails out of, of the information that's provided. So, 
So we think it, it acts as a drag at the margin. Some companies will not offer share repurchases, thereby reducing the options for investors who want to take the company's cash and go, you know, put their kids in college or whatever, use it, use the money as they see fit. And I think too, right, as an accountant, uh, at least in this episode here, you can imagine anything that gets added to a 10Q or a 10K has got to go through a significant burden to create and, and evaluate that information internally. And then those pesky auditors, right, they want to see how that was calculated. And, and as you get away from some of the quantitative issues, right, obviously you can go look and see 100 shares were bought back on Tuesday the 4th. But the rationale piece of that, the, the qualitative information around those disclosures, you can imagine would be very challenging to get an understanding of or, or to audit to a degree in certain circumstances. Very true. And, and you know, there will be some judgment calls by management in, in putting together that information. And those judgment calls will be and can be criticized in hindsight by the SEC. And so it provides, you know, it, it, you're, you're increasing your risk exposure if you choose to go down this path. And some companies won't choose to go down that path. All right. So, I mean, we've been trying to put both of these cases, Murphy and the Chamber of Commerce case in, in context, right? With respect to Murphy, we said, how is this regulation by enforcement? Well, maybe that one's easy because there was no rulemaking. So the only thing you could do is sort of lob in an amicus brief and, and point that out. You know, here in Chamber of Commerce, there was at least a, a rulemaking. So sort of explain to us how, how you think about this as an example of regulation by enforcement. Oh, I'm sorry. This is not regulation by enforcement. I think the the share purchase buyback uh, example is the way that the SEC should. Oh, so this is the good the, uh, the good example. This yeah. is the good example. Right. Yeah, we don't like the outcome, right. but that's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like yeah. you know the process was a much better process. The you know with the the public ability to comment, and then if you don't like the outcome and you think that's wrong or exceeds the statutory authority or whatever other problems it may have, you can challenge that in court. But at least there's been a public vetting of the of the change in position. So it's actually, I think, a good way to go. The I don't know if you follow this Kirshner case in the Second Circuit, but it's it involves is private private action involving syndicated term loans. And the Second Circuit, the issue is, are these things securities? It's mm -hmm. like a $2 trillion segment of the market. And the Second Circuit asked the SEC to weigh in. They asked the SEC to submit an amicus brief. They're not a party to the case. And I think wisely, the SEC, but, but bizarrely, the SEC declined. <laughs> They, the general counsel wrote a letter to the Second Circuit saying, look, we thought about it and we just were not going to weigh in. And I think that's an example of the SEC not regulating by enforcement. It wouldn't have been an enforcement case. It's a private yeah. litigation. But they chose not to. I mean, this would have, if they had said, yes, these syndicated term loans are securities, it would have thrown this $2 trillion market into disarray. So they chose not to take a position in this case. That leaves the Second Circuit a little high and dry. They'll have to figure it out themselves. But, you know, that's an issue that shouldn't be decided in a single case. It should be decided like the share repurchase rule should be decided by rulemaking, by statutory, you know, congressional activity, that kind of thing, not not in a single case. That's an interesting example. And I, I haven't been following that one to be to be honest, but I think uh, you're right. I think it's the right decision for, you know, for the commission or the staff not to step in. Um, you know, if they wanted to give guidance in that space, there are other channels. Of course, rulemaking is probably the best thing, right? right? But it seems like the right decision. Well, I mean, look, I don't know if you want to peek around the corner at all, but I mean, where where do you think this is going? I mean, to to me at least, it feels like we're talking more about regulation by enforcement these days, and maybe we've sort of hit one end of the pendulum swing. I don't know, but what do you think, Nick? Well, I think uh, uh, 
Unless there's a, a big change institutionally at the SEC, it's just something that's going to continue. I do think, I mentioned in passing the Jarkissi case, which the Supreme Court has taken up for the next term, I do think the ability to engage in regulation by enforcement in administrative proceedings, which we haven't touched on, I'm sure you have in a prior episode, is particularly an egregious way to go, because then you don't even have the benefit of a jury, for mm-hmm. example, which is one of the issues Jarkissi is raising. So I do think that will help. I think, you know, if we're going to be regulating by enforcement, I'd much rather have it happen in a federal court in front of a federal judge. So so I think that will help to sort of limit that avenue as a way for the SEC to expand its jurisdiction through litigated matters. That's great to hear. One last question for you, Nick. The tagline on, on the logo for ICANN is, if I can, <laughs> you can. Care to add anything I think additional Chris, to that? that speaks for itself. Okay. You know, no, I, <laughs> actually, I, I, he probably don't want me to want me to give him credit for this, but it, uh, there was a, a Paul Hastings associate who came up with that, and he was like, "Well, if the ICANN nonprofit exists and is out there fighting for your rights, you will be able to do what you choose with your investment dollars." So the idea was, if ICANN exists, then you will be able to invest as you see fit. That was the idea there. Excellent. But, uh, but thanks like for it. asking. Hopefully yeah. that associate is an avid listener of the Insecurities <laughs> Podcast and is somewhere smiling knowingly to themselves as they nod in, in satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, they got a call so. out. So uh, for our listeners out there interested in learning more about ICANN, you can go to ICANNlaw.org. Uh, obviously, those, those of you can, can follow Nick uh, on social media as well as follow him through Paul Hastings' website. Uh, Nick, we've had a great time with you today. Thank you for, for illuminating us on some of the things that ICANN's dealing with as well as getting into the nitty-gritty on some of these cases. We appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. I don't get to SEC nerd out a lot, so this is uh, it's been great. Be talking careful, to you guys. we might really invite you back now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest Nick Morgan of Paul Hastings. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. 
These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.